we continue to make our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the uh, Christians at Corinth, to so the church there, listening in as we've been doing to hear what instruction God intends for us, or rebuke, or an encouragement, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin our reading at verse 17 and continue through verse 34. Last week, uh, Paul commended the Corinthian Christians, actually, and we were pleased to uh, see him commend them for anything. And there was so much wrong in the uh, Corinthian church, so much dysfunction, so much division, so much by way of destructive behavior that Paul had to rebuke. Uh, we were beginning to wonder uh, whether they had gotten anything right. Well, they had, and Paul commended them for their faithfulness in the exercise of distinctive uh, masculinity and femininity as expressed in the matter of head covering. And the fact that they had embraced their sexuality, that they had adorned the gifts that God had given them of manhood and womanhood, particularly in the sanctuary, in worship, was a matter on which they were to be commended. Christians in our day and place, uh, by the way, will be called upon to embrace these gifts of God with all the more ardor uh, and more than maybe ever in our own lifetime as we stand in stark contrast to the culture these days in which every effort is being made to put all human beings into a gender blender, essentially. Unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you have seen and have seen and noticed uh, there, there is an active force at work today seeking to undermine and undo God's perfect creation, specifically by denying the distinction be between the sexes, the divine uh, distinctives and design between man and woman. Rebellion against God takes many forms, doesn't it? And this is certainly one of them, throwing off our sexuality. So Paul has just commended them in that area of their lives of worship, but there's another area in which he does not commend them. In fact, he issues what can only be viewed as a stern warning, a stern response to what he has heard about their practices concerning the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're glad to be instructed by your word and encouraged. And Father, where we need to be rebuked as well, we pray that you will do so. We ask for the graces required that in every way we may conform to your word, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together... It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, the other gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The divisions and factions that we've seen in Corinth thus far, looking through the window of this book, are aggravated and particularly egregious, shockingly bad, at the Lord's Supper. Or at least at what they were calling the Lord's Supper. Paul says that what they were doing was so bad, it was not in reality the Lord's Supper that they were eating at all. Apparently, the Lord's Supper had, um, had become part of a larger festivity, a fellowship meal, sometimes called the agape, uh, to which food was brought by the families of the church. But some were eating their own meals, while other people in the church were literally going hungry. Some were even getting drunk. And if the borderline Bacchanalia were not offensive enough in itself, the divisions were deepening in Corinth, of all things. Because it was the rich who were indulging, leaving the poor Christians, the poorer Christians excluded and humiliated. And therefore, Paul concludes, the church of God despised. There was nothing whatever that he could commend. Nothing that Paul could find to commend about their behavior when it came to the Lord's Supper. And, and God had taken note of their, of their drunken, selfish revelry under the sacred banner. And, and had even, God had even killed some of them for it. It was a form of discipline, Paul points out, but he, he had killed some of the Corinthians for their behavior at the supper. That might shock you. 
But of course, it shouldn't really shock us, should it? We we recall, don't we, after having given Moses instruction and sending him to Egypt to lead the people out of their bondage, out of their captivity, God came to Moses while he was on the way to do the task God had sent him to do, came to Moses to kill Moses. Why? Because he had not performed the sacrament, observed the sacrament of circumcision on his son. Only the quick thinking and actions of Zipporah Praise God, gentlemen, don't we, for our wise and faithful wives. Zipporah grabs a flint knife and circumcises their son and saves Moses' skin. God takes our observation of the sacraments very, very seriously. And so must we. One of the ways that we've tried as a congregation to put hands and feet on the seriousness of the Lord's Supper has been the restoration to a frequent observance or celebration of the Lord's Supper. Often is the word Jesus uses with regard to the Supper, and weekly seems to be or have been the apostolic pattern in Scripture, and so we have restored the Supper to a weekly observance and celebration in obedience to taking the sacraments seriously. But uh, let me quickly add that uh, it has been a matter for us of great rejoicing and of pleasure and of encouragement and of edification and enjoyment. Such frequent attendance to the Lord's Supper has uh, had its happy effect and profound on us that we may immediately recognize Communing with Christ, drawing close to Christ, and Christ our Savior drawing close to Him, uh, to us at this table week after week, has had some very subtle but real effects in our lives and in our life together as a congregation. And not only uh, to Him have we been drawn close, but we've been knit closer together as a congregation. Precisely for this, for this, our weekly Lord's Supper. So what is a passage addressing the sort of gross abuses that were taking place in Corinth, so much so that what they were doing wasn't even to be considered the Lord's Supper? I say, what is, what is the passage addressing that kind of gross abuse have to do with us today? We haven't got anybody drunk. Uh, at the Lord's Supper, getting drunk or eating without others. We're not denying poorer people uh, the Lord's Supper while the richer get it. Uh, the homeowners association owners get it just as well as the renters, don't they, at this table? Well, though the specific rebuke of this passage may not be directly applicable to our situation, that there are some principles uh, for us to draw and apply to our situation uh, this morning and every Sabbath day when we come to the Lord's table. I want to propose just three of them to you this morning, namely unity and humility and gratitude. Unity, humility, 
and gratitude. First, unity. When we gather around the table of the Lord together, we come as a body. We come as the body of Christ, as the church. This was at the heart. This was really the heart of Paul's objection to whatever it was they were doing in Corinth under the banner of the Lord's Supper. They were not coming as one. They, they were coming as a fractious people, divided not only along the lines we read earlier in this book, lining themselves up behind one teacher or another, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, not only along those lines, but now even along socioeconomic lines too. Rich people to the left, poor to the right. Our food, our drink over here, you rabble, you people over there. Wrong. Wrong, says Paul. We come to this table as one in Christ. All other divisions disappearing. That's the point of Paul's instruction there in verse 28. Let a person examine himself, that is, he explains in verse 29, discerning the body. Now we have, alas, somehow turned that commandment of of examination, of discerning the body into some kind of uh, deep, almost morose introspection, looking in on ourselves and, and accompanied it with some sort of mental, mystical exercise of, of trying to locate Jesus' body in, in the bread, a task that even the doctors of the Christian church have failed to accomplish all these centuries. But that's not what Paul is after here. He's offering a downright practical response to a real problem that existed in Corinth in the first century. Discernment, Paul wants, instead of dissension. That's the distinction. Discernment, not dissension, not division. Discernment of what? Discernment of our oneness in Christ. In other words, don't come to the supper, Paul is saying, don't come to the supper with disregard for the church, with disdain for your brothers and sisters with whom you have differences, with disagreements and divisions foremost on your heart and on your mind. Don't come as some Christians do. Sadly, they come to the Lord's Supper, some Christians do, intending to snatch something up for themselves personally, in isolation from everyone else, without so much as you know, rubbing shoulders with those with whom their flesh considers undesirable. Don't, don't, don't come to this table with your, your grudges and your records of wrong against other Christians. And then it's entirely possible that you've sinned against someone, isn't it? It's possible that you've offended somebody and that they have a legitimate beef against you. And don't come to this table until you've gone to them and sought their forgiveness. And inasmuch as it lies in you, whether they're willing to forgive you or not, that's a whole separate issue. 
inasmuch as it lies in you to live at peace with all men and then come to the table. Do come, let's put it positively, shall we? Do come to the table as a member of the body of Christ to be one with the body of Christ. Here we are. That practical direction is as true as ever it was. And here's the interesting thing about that. When we come to this table, to the Lord's table, that way, unified as one, intending to be unified as one at this table, closely knit together, then we leave this table even closer than we came, even more tightly and wonderfully knit together as one. How can we not? Families eat together. Friends feast together at table. Brothers and sisters who share a meal as we do here every Lord's Day in God's house. We are one, and nowhere in this service is that more clearly to be seen and experienced and, and reveled in than when the Lord seals his covenant to us, his covenant people who are one in Christ. Until finally these weekly meals give way who knows when? Much sooner than we anticipate, I think. When these meals culminate in the great feast where the whole body of Christ from every tongue, tribe, nation of people gather as one at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So in terms of this passage, I say to you, whether you come to this table wearing a Rolex or a Timex, whether you're a, a renter or an owner, a blue-collar worker, a big-time executive or homemaker, whether you drive a DeLorean or Datsun or Dodge, uh, or don't drive at all, we come as one to this supper. Which brings me to the second point, humility. Coming to the supper, to the Lord's Supper, both requires and, like unity, requires and then fosters humility. How can it not? We don't come to the supper because we've got it all together. We don't come to this table because we've arrived. Because we've, we've somehow earned our spot at Christ's banquet. We're invited and we are admitted to this table by the same principle by which we were saved to begin with, by grace. We don't bring bread and wine. It is given to us like the salvation it signifies and seals to us freely. We receive at the table. Jesus opens up his hands here at his table and he says, come to me. And even as we obey Jesus' commandment to remember him, we remember that it was not we who found him. It was he who found us. 
He who came to us, who took on flesh, who lived among us, who suffered the pains of this life and the pangs of our death in our place on the cross to save us. This is my body, this my blood given, shed for you. What more humbling message for us in all the world as this. We were lost and now we are found. We were blind and now we see. We were bound headlong for hell when one interposed to save us by giving himself his life for us in our place, suffering the wrath of God, going through hell for us, that we instead may enjoy peace with God and eternal life. All, all pretense, all pride disappears, dies, is mortified right here at this table. There is no one at this table who is more deserving or less deserving of the grace we receive here, my brothers and sisters. Here we come alike, every one of us, sinners who have been made saints, beggars who have been made, as we heard at the reception last night, princes and princesses, kings and queens in the kingdom of God by his grace. Charles Evans Hughes was nominated by President William Taft on April 25, 1910 to the United States Supreme Court and later he served as Chief Justice of the High Court. But uh, he was also a churchman, Hughes was. In Washington, D.C., Hughes presented himself for membership in a Baptist church, and it was the tradition, the custom in that church to uh, invite the new members to come forward and uh, to introduce them to the congregation, much as we do here. As it happened... Uh, on the same morning when Chief Justice Hughes was to be presented and introduced, a, a Chinese laundryman uh, named Ah Singh uh, came up also for membership. He had moved to the capital from San Francisco. The pastor standing in the pulpit called up Ah Singh, who came forward and took his place at the pastor's left side. A dozen others were called after him, but when they arrived, came up the center of the aisle and, and arrived at the front, they, they looked that direction and saw Mr. Singh and headed straight for that side, one after another after another. And then Chief Justice Hughes was called up by the pastor. He came to the front, he looked to, the, to that side, he looked to that side, and he went and stood by Ah Singh's side. The pastor, a bit embarrassed, 
maybe a little frustrated, I don't know. He grasped that teachable moment, and he turned to the congregation, and he said this, I don't want you to miss this congregation. So he spread out his arms in both directions. At the cross of Christ, the ground is level. Dear flock, at the table of Christ, the ground is level. All of us, every single one of us comes to this table in the same state. Sinners saved by grace. There's no difference. There's, there's, there's no room for pride. There's no hierarchy. There, there are no credentials. In fact, what we have here, it just occurs to me, are, are Christians who all, every single one of them, know what Paul said about himself. Of sinners, I'm the worst. All of us. No credits. Only people who are lost and are now found, who are blind and now see. With empty hands we come, naked, helpless. And he puts wine and bread, his body and blood in our mouths, and he dresses us again in those sparkling robes of pure righteousness that Reverend Wilson told us about in his benediction yesterday, even as we are, were reminded. Unity, humility, and then third, gratitude. The Lord's Supper is a place of gratitude, isn't it? First, it was a place of gratitude for Jesus, which is quite amazing, really. Almost mind-blowing. Jesus at the Lord's Supper, when he instituted it there, he gave thanks. He expressed his gratitude in that upper room when he took bread. In verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it. What did Jesus give thanks for? You ever think about that? You ever wonder what he said? Father, thank you for this food. Amen. Certainly that much. I don't know for sure, but because the Bible doesn't tell us. But can't you imagine that he, that he at that moment thanked the Father for the means of salvation, thanked him for his redemptive plan, thanked him for the fact that these whom he loved so dearly at the table with him, his friends, as he called him, that, that they could find themselves one day at the great wedding feast, at that banquet with him, even, even as the dread and the doom, the looming darkness was closing in on his very soul. Remember when this was, Paul says, on the night on which he was betrayed. Remember where this night would find him in the Garden of Gethsemane and there praying again, even as his betrayer, one of his friends, was coming for him. His heart 
wrenched within him with excruciating anguish over what he knew that night would bring and the next day to the point that he sweat great drops of blood. You see, he was already shedding his blood for us the night before. As those words were pressed from his lips, not Yet not my will, but thine be done. And that very night on which he was betrayed, he gave thanks. That's why the Lord's Supper is sometimes in Christian circles called the Eucharist from the Greek word for thanks, thanksgiving. And that is why we never come to this table must never come without thanks, just as our Savior did. But but just in case, but in our case, of course, it is thankfulness for what our Savior did for us. And what thanks we must render who have grasped even the outskirts of what he has done. Here's how one of the Puritans put it. Canst thou see this bread broken? and the wine distinctly severed from the bread, and not call to mind Christ's agony in the garden, his sufferings in the high priest's palace, and his cross on Mount Calvary, in all which places he freely shed his blood for thee, Canst thou take and eat this bread and drink this cup and in so doing not apprehend Christ stooping from heaven to feed thy soul with bread of life, his own body and water of life, his own blood, Christ bowing his head on the cross to kiss thee. Christ opening his side to heal and wash thee, and Christ condescending to thy senses as once to Thomas, saying, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Brothers and sisters, every time we come to this table, we're reminded that eternity will is, is too short. It's just too short for us to render all the thanks that we have to give to him for this, for what he has done to save us, us. I know that for some of you, the Lord's Supper may may not have been a great comfort over the years. And, and God help us if we need that changed, and he will. But it's not been a great comfort for you. The Lord's Supper has not been primarily a time of unity and gratitude because you are certain, you are just sure that it can't be for you that I've got to be just too sinful. You've taken that doctrine that you are the worst of sinners and you have made it the reason why you can't possibly come to this supper. 
And maybe you've even been letting this supper pass by because you think that somehow you don't rise to the level of worth and of worthiness. I had a trucker tell me a few months ago in our conversation about salvation in the Christian life, when I asked him whether uh, he's taking the Lord's Supper, he, he hung his head and he said, John, I just let it go by because I've just done so many bad things in my life. But that's the point. That is the point. We are not worthy. We could never be worthy. It's Christ who is worthy, and he alone. And he was reaching out to us and saying, like the famous Rabbi Duncan did to that sobbing woman in his Scottish Presbyterian pew, who moments earlier had let the communion pass by her, let, let the bread pass by. He stepped from the platform and came to that sobbing woman, held out the bread to her and said, Madam, it is for sinners. It's for sinners whom I love, says Jesus, whom I love and for whom I have given my body and my blood. Don't stay away. Come. Don't let these pass by. This is Christ's love for sinners, his special love for you, my brother, my sister, for you, sinner. I want to finish if I may, by quoting to you something that was jotted down by someone who is in the room when uh, John Owen, the prince of the Puritans, was delivering one of his famous communion discourses, talks that he gave just before uh, serving the Lord's Supper. I offer it to you now because Owen so wonderfully captures the unity, the humility, the gratitude fitting for and flowing from these times at this table, even this morning. Consider, said John Owen, the special love of Christ, that Christ had a special love, not only for the church in general, but the truth is Christ had a special love for me in particular. It will be a very hard thing for you or me to rise up to an act of faith that Christ had that love for us in particular unless we can answer this question. Why should Christ love you or me in particular? What answer can I give here to when I know he does not love all the world? I can give but this answer to it. Just because he would. I know nothing in me or in any of you that can deserve his love. Was there ever such a thing heard of that Christ should have a, a particular love for such as we are? Would, would ever a person go and fix his love on, on a creature that who is all over leprous? Is this the manner of a man? Truly, 
Christ would never have fixed his love upon any of our poor, defiled, leprous souls, but upon this one consideration. I know that I can cleanse them, and I will. He loved us. Amen.